Welcome to another podcast from Generations Church. We trust you will be encouraged today. A uh, new series today, and I'm just going slow to build some anticipation for it. But if you heard the songs we were singing this morning, obviously uh, there's some good things happening, there's some good things in the air. And uh, the title of our series for the next few weeks is Come Alive. And uh, it could have been Wake Up, it could have been, I don't know, just every Sunday when you came to church, we'd pour cold water on you. That's actually a good series idea. Christine, would you make a note of that for us, please? The cold water series. Every Sunday, can you imagine coming into church and it's like the ice bath challenge? It's perfect. I think that's what we should do. Um, The coming alive that we're experiencing right now is because of what has been going on in our world for the past few years. And not just the past few years, but many years. Uh, it, It would seem throughout history that God always preserves a remnant of his people. And then God visits with revival and his presence and his mercy. He revisits creation once again. And I really believe that we are, we are moving into those days uh, as a nation, specifically as a region. I sense that God is doing something in our region, like in the northwestern corner of North America, that is going to be, <laughs> is going to be exciting, to say the least. But the question is, church, is what are you going to do with the feed that you get every week? And as I was sitting here just listening to Tyler and and Tyson and and preparing just to to come up and start today, you know, I have, I'm I'm a cow guy, I have cows. And my prayer is that some of us should always have cows around, as the Corblund song says. Because they, they teach us things, actually, about Jesus. Not that cows do, but the idea that running stock and the Bible comparing us to stock all the time, as in cows and sheep and whatnot, uh, it gives us actually understanding. I think if the world was more in touch with livestock, they would actually become more in touch with God's Word because a lot of things would start to make sense. But I want to issue you a challenge in these days of coming alive, church. And that is my question. What are you going to do with the investment that's being made in your life? What are you going to do with the feed that's being poured into you. This was a hard year for hay for farmers. There was a drought last summer. Hay prices went through the roof. People started dumping cattle. Uh, so, so that only exasper- exasperates the problem because you end up with more cattle changing hands, which means people are trying to acquire extra feed, and there's just simply not enough to go around. And so it creates this really tumultuous time for a year or two probably. And my point in sharing that is that this year I couldn't afford to waste a bale. Couldn't afford it. Um, some people were paying $200 for a round bale. Normally, we'd pay $50 for a round bale of hay. And I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to hear this from my heart today. If you were a cow on my farm, and you weren't giving me any calves, how long should I keep on feeding you hay that I don't have? Just a question. I would have to stop feeding you. I would have to sell you or put you in the freezer. Now, all those in the church who don't want to be put in the freezer say amen. You know, I'm just saying. Listen, guys, the goal of my life from the time I was a kid, from the time I had understanding of this principle of investment, I realized the weight in my heart to try to give Jesus a good return on the investment he's made in my life. And I want you to do the same. 
I want you to take the investment that is made in your life here at Generations Church week after week, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week as leaders are praying for you, as leaders step in and out of your life as you need help, as you need uh, progress, as you need training, all of the things that a church does, and not just our church, but any good church does. Man, I want to challenge you today, in light of what is coming down the pipe at us, to make every effort to give Jesus a good return on the investment that's being made into your life. To give your pastors, your leaders, to give your church a good return on the investment that's being made in your life. Because if you miss that part of it, I'm afraid you're just one of those people who sits in church and ends up having a form of godliness but no understanding of the power that's in godliness. And so, as we go through this message today, church, I, I, I'm calling on you. Come alive. Wake up. Some of you are asleep. As I've said before, this whole, this whole wokeness in society right now is nothing more than a counterfeit of what God has been saying to his people all along. Wake up, O oh sleeper. But it's God's word. It's God's message to his people all along. And right now what we're seeing is the world, I think we're seeing a, a spirit in the world, Antichrist if you want to call it that, who's saying, well, we're going to have our own new doctrine called wokeness. It's a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit of what God is doing. And what God is doing is reviving his people. He is separating for himself a special possession of humanity calling that possession to himself. Guys, these are the days we're in. The title of the message today is Resurrection. And I want you to know right off the bat that this is a message about a principle, and because it's a principle that I have made up, I'm going to title that principle. All right? And I'm going to call it the principle of resurrection. Now, before we get too far into this, let me state rather simply what that is. And I mean, you could literally cue the clown music, you know, or the circus music. That one, because this is so simple. It is so unprofound. Yet, it is the absolute reality that you and I need to walk in if we're going to try to understand the heart of God in the days that we're in. So here is the principle of resurrection. I'll put it up on the screen for you. The principle of resurrection is that Jesus brings things to life that are dead. That is, dead to the point of smelling bad. Therefore, it is necessary that something be in the state of death, literally or figuratively, for resurrection to take place. Now, isn't that, it is painfully simple to say that. But if I compare that to how people live their lives, I would say people have no idea at all that something, in order for something to be resurrected, that it actually has to die first. Because we live in a world where even the church is so protective of vision, so protective of finances, so protective of, of, of relationships, so protective of so many things, that we become unwilling to trust God with what happens if that thing were to go to ground and die and produce fruit. Now, if you all planted more seeds and were more, again, once against again in touch with where our food comes from, i got to tell you, we all know that a seed needs to go into the ground. It needs to die, and it needs to get wet, and it needs to get a little moldy, and it actually needs to start to smell bad for what to happen, for a root to come out. And for a plant to spring forth and bear fruit. These are principles that we see in all of creation. And somehow we begin to miss it when we're sowing the seed of the gospel. 
This principle applies to people, obviously, as we're going to read in the story of Lazarus, but it also applies to our spiritual reality, specifically the state of the human spirit prior to salvation, as we're going to read about in the story of Lazarus. And throughout the process of perfection, and what I mean by that is that Along our journey to perfection, you see, because we're already sanctified, we're already made, we're already set apart and made holy by what Jesus did, but we are in this process of purification or this process of perfection as we travel through this life. And in that process, you are going to experience death and resurrection multiple times. Now, nobody wants to hear that. Not one of you came to church this morning wanting to hear me tell you that things are going to die in your life. And I think of my friend Jay Parr, whose dad just passed away, and what an untimely thing in a way. But as much as we can mourn with the Parr family right now, we also know that his dad was ready to go see Jesus and was saying so. I'm ready to go. I hope that by the end of this message, you get the spectrum of what I'm talking about here. And it's all right here in Scripture. We just need to take the time to break it down and pull out those things that are valuable, those things that are profitable for us in the times that we're in. John 11. We're going to read most of the chapter, but this is what it says, and I like the NASB, so that's what's going to be up on the screen, but you can follow along in a different translation if you brought your Bible or you want to use your phone or whatever app is popular with you these days. But this is what it says, John 11.1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother's Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Someone say, he whom you love. I know, it's a bit of a tongue twister. But, but when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Let it sink in as we go through this story. Understand the possibility and goodness of God working in the background of people's lives. Because I'm going to tell you again, guys, we are all going to experience the death of things. Yes, people, but let's just set that aside for now. We're going to experience the death of vision, of dreams, of relationship, of hope, of plans. We're going to experience the death of many, many things. I want you to know that it's okay. Jesus wants you to know that it's okay. So let's extract a principle. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm glad that's not lost on you. That doesn't make much sense. So because Jesus loved them, he didn't respond to them right away. I want to I just, just let this register with you. Come on, church. Because he loves them, he stays two more days. And some of you get really offended when this happens in your life. You actually get mad at God. You get mad at people. Because you're sitting there saying, you're praying, you're earnestly calling out for help in your time of need. God, why won't you come? Why won't you save me? Why won't you deliver me from this situation? Why won't you help me? And can you get your heart around this this morning? That because Jesus loves you, he's going to wait two more days? Yeah, see, nobody wants, nobody's amen in that. I don't want to amen that. But that's what the Bible says, because Jesus loved them, he waited two more days. Huh. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. 
The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? You're going back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles. Now listen to this. Because the light is not in him. And at this point, I don't think his disciples get it. And most of us don't get it because we glaze right over this. Well, duh, of course. If you walk in the day, you can see. And if you're walking at night, you can't see because there's no light. But then just pause. Why did Jesus say because the light is not in him? See, this all of a sudden becomes a metaphor. Because the disciples, contrary to some belief, were not stupid. They they weren't unintelligent people. They were just rather uneducated people, which, by the way, worked toward their benefit in the end of the things, in in, in large, in, in many ways. At this point, they didn't get it, and we don't get it either. Jesus is the light of the world. And Jesus then says that you and I are also the light of the world. And he makes the point when he calls his followers the light of the world, and I think it references to this point he makes here. Wherever Jesus is, true light is. Wherever Jesus is, that's where true light is. This isn't, this isn't literally about day and night. This is about who walks in the light and who doesn't walk in the light. And so when you and I are walking in the light, we need to be walking in a different understanding than those who don't walk in the light. This is why we need to walk with him and not away from him. Because if you try to walk away from Jesus, that is to be walking apart from who he is, to be walking detached from who he is, you are walking in darkness. And if you're walking in darkness, you can't see what's going on around you. But when you're with Jesus, even though you can't see the future, you can still see what's in front of you. It's maybe just as simple as that. Then he said, this he said, after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. It's just a nap. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now, now, don't be mad at Jesus for the next part. And I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, which means twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, Thomas, For your attitude, that sucks. (laughs) For your rather cynical view and outlook of life and ministry and walking with the Lord. But maybe your heart's actually in the right place. What's scary is that uh, the name Didymus means twin. And and they had a, the disciples, they, they had a habit of calling him Didymus. His name's Thomas, but they called him Didymus. They called him the twin. And and so, so, so here's the thing I want you to catch out of this, that You and I are often like Thomas. We're Didymus. And there's another twin out there 
somewhere. Maybe that's you, maybe that's me. But don't miss this little nugget because it can go both ways. Thomas, who we also know as the doubter, who could be cynical, who could be faithless, who could be uh, resistant to the possibilities that Jesus can present, or on the positive side was Thomas, that disciple at this moment, who was totally sincere in his willingness just to go with Jesus, even if it meant dying. And don't think for a second it's absolutely one or the other. Because Thomas went with Jesus a lot of places, and Thomas did eventually die a martyr. In India, I believe. Now, who are you today when it comes to these situations and these places and these things? I mean, the death of Lazarus was not a personal loss for Thomas, who is also called Didymus, the twin. But the loss of Martha and Mary of Lazarus was about to cost Thomas potentially his own life. And it would seem to me that he was very aware of this. So, whether it was for good or whether it was for bad, Thomas says, well, let's also go so we can die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Can you please posture your heart like Martha? Here's what I admire about Martha in this moment. She, she doesn't know what's happening. She doesn't understand why it's taken Jesus so long to get here. And she willingly, she, she willingly expresses that to him, doesn't she? Lord, if you had been here, I don't know if she knew that he had delayed two days, but probably because all women have this internal clock that has of telling people or telling themselves when their husband or child or whomever they're waiting on should be home. Prove, prove me that I'm wrong. Somebody prove it to me. All women have this internal clock. It, you should have been here by now. He should have been here by now. What is going on? Why is it taking so long? What is wrong? Right? I mean, this is, this is if you're a married person, you know how this story goes. If you're a child, a teenage child with a mother, you know how this story goes. But what I appreciate so much about Mary is she doesn't, she doesn't throw down and, and give an ultimatum to Jesus. No, what does she do? She offers her complaint, if we can call it that. Lord, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. But that doesn't matter because now you're here. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. In other words... If you would have come here sooner, he wouldn't have died. But you know what? I'm still going to trust you. Now, come on. Looking at the last year or two of your life, how many of you could realize that's actually the posture I should have taken before? I have. There's a number of things. I look back and say, um, I, ugh, wrong posture. Shoot. I missed it. Even though, even though you're not here in the time I suspect God. You're not here in the timing that I thought I needed you in. I'm still going to trust you. See, this is what gives 
birth to this idea in our church where we say this all the time, I'm going to trust God no matter what. Here's where most of the church in North America sits. I'm going to trust God if I have time. And, and more directly, if I have the timeline that I want. And my friends, that's actually not faith. It's at least not faith in Jesus. So have the posture of, of Martha. You should all be a little bit more like Martha. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, Jesus doesn't take anything away from what she said. He clarifies what she's saying. Lord, I know that he will be raised to life on the last day, on the day of resurrection. And Jesus is like he's saying, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection. I am that last day. His name also being Alpha and Omega. The first, the last, the beginning, the end, the author and the finisher of your faith and mine. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus said to Mary. Jesus said to Martha. Sorry. And she said, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Church, he who believes and everyone who believes lives. Anyone and everyone, man or woman, regardless of religious background, regardless of creed or race, everyone who lives and believes. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Interesting that we don't actually read that there in the script, that Jesus actually said, hey, now go get your sister. So I don't know if that's just like an older sister bossing a younger sister around. I see that happen from time to time in my house. You know? Mara will say something like, Annika, mom and dad want you. Well, we didn't expressly call for her. You know what's interesting about this that I find kind of neat, though? She wasn't wrong. Just like when I see it happen in my house with my kids, they're not actually wrong. I'm always calling for my kids. Not to come and do chores, but my heart is always calling to their heart for the sake of relationship. Always this drive to be close, always this drive to be near, always this drive to be united in relationship. And this is the heart that Jesus has, not just for Martha, but for Mary, and for Lazarus, and for his disciples, and eventually we see for, for the whole world, for every face that God ever created, the heart of Jesus says, I want you, I'm calling for you. I'm calling you to come to me. You might be sitting here this morning not having a relationship with your Heavenly Father. You don't have this this all-important, the only way to the Father is Jesus. You don't have this component in your life. And I want you to know today that Jesus is calling you. He's saying, come. Come to me. 
I'm calling after you. So when Mary heard, she quickly got up and was coming to Jesus. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. See, it was a Jewish cultural tradition that the, that the people would come together to mourn. And they didn't, let, they didn't let a mourning person run around all by themselves or anything like that. They very much went as a unit. And so, you know, it'd be like if I died and Amy was mourning, the people would come to the house, and then everywhere Mary or Amy would go, mourning me because of the loss of such a great man in her life, such a wonderful, loving, kind husband, courageous and handsome and strong, and all of the things that she would surely mourn if I had died. Right? Oh, the ladies, the ladies in the church would, would be with her. And if she got up to go to the bathroom, they would all get up and they would go stand at the door. They'd wait. Awkward, I know, right? Or she would go to town and they would come and meet with her in town. Why? Because they were seeing to her need. They, they, were, just, they were just there to be present. And so the other people who were in the room were focused on Mary's need. Don't lose this church. They weren't focused on their own need. They were focused on the need of Mary. And because they were focused on the need of someone that they were there to care about, when Jesus called Mary, Jesus called them. Don't ever underestimate the power of proximity in your life. Don't miss it. You want relationship with, you want relationship with your pastor? Well, come and be where I am. Don't undervalue proximity. You want deeper relationship? Everybody wants a relationship with Jana and Carlisle. You know what? You go, go be with them. Get involved. Show up to men's prayer. Show up to the things that they're doing and leading. That's how you'll have proximity to people. You see, we don't think of it that way. But when we put ourselves in the position of these other people who were with Mary, there to minister to Mary, even though they had no idea what was going on around them, they were about to be walked into one of the greatest miracles of the New Testament. And this is all in the sidelines of the story. If you'll just pause and, and, and think, Holy Spirit, what do you want to say to me? He'll start showing you what's in the text. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now listen, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping. Everybody is, everybody is crying. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could this could not this man who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man also from dying? Sometimes, if you're willing to admit this this morning, you can give yourself a pat on the back. And if you're not willing to admit this this morning, I'd like you to look into the mirror of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we think that God is rejoicing in our loss and suffering because he knows something better is in store. That is one of the biggest lies the enemy has ever woven into our existence. 
that our Father in heaven rejoices in our suffering. That is, that is absolute tavro shitso. Tavro is the Greek word for bull. And shitso is the Greek word for kaka. I know, it's an old one, but it's absolute garbage. Yes, I'll acknowledge that it, a few moments ago we read in the text, Jesus said, I'm glad. I'm glad that it's happening because you need to see something. But listen to me very, very carefully. The enemy wants to defeat you by telling you that when you encounter trial and you encounter perseverance and suffering, that somehow you know and you're supposed to believe with a smile on your face that God is going to turn it for good because that's what God does. You actually fall for the lie that says God is rejoicing in your suffering. And church, that is, that is so far from the truth. It's, it's, it's not funny at all. God absolutely does have better things in store for us. That is true. God absolutely can and will turn curses that come against you into blessings that are for you. Absolutely true that He will do that. And He does do it all the time. But this does not mean that God is removed from your struggle or your trials or your pain. It does not mean that He fails to have compassion in His heart for your broken situation. It does not mean that His heart is not broken with your heart when you encounter loss. Church, you need to understand that when Lazarus died, it broke Jesus' heart. It broke his heart. This is why I think the book of Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest then who can identify with every weakness. It doesn't say that we have a high priest who celebrates our weakness, but a high priest in Jesus who identifies with loss. And not loss on the heavenly grand scale of salvation for all mankind. Not even loss of the Father turning His face away from Him, but the kind of loss you and I face every day when a loved one passes away too soon, or when a business fails, or a marriage fails, or when a relationship that you weren't expecting blows up, or when a dream dies, and you fall into depression. Church, no. Know without a doubt this morning that in your struggle, God does not rejoice in your struggle. But there is something that he rejoices in, and we'll get to it. God hurts with our losses, and, and if you have a child in the hospital, and some of you know this all too well, but let's say you have a child in the hospital undergoing a serious treatment for a serious injury. Even though you know, and in your heart already can rejoice that they're going to come through it okay, that everything is going to be fine, when you watch your child in pain, no matter how good the news is that you're sure of, your heart still breaks, doesn't it? When Annika was three years old, or three, three years old, she fell down some stairs. Nobody pushed her, I promise. But she broke her, she didn't just break, she actually, I should have had a picture, she actually snapped her arm. Her forearm broke, both bones broke, and her arm actually looked like stairs. So she could hold it like this, and then this part of the arm pointed straight out that way. It was horrifically broken. 
So much so that it actually put Amy into shock. Just a little bit. It did. And I'll never, ever forget that we went into the hospital with her. I, went, I was at a meeting. I went tearing over there and found Amy sitting in the waiting room still. And I grabbed the nurse and said, you guys, someone's going to throw up in that waiting room if you don't deal with my little girl. I'm telling you right now, there are green faces looking at her broken arm. And the nurse says, oh, sorry. Oh, she comes out and looks. Oh, my gosh. And boom, we're in a room. Surgeon comes in, young surgeon, the kind of surgeon that wants to cut everything open. Probably turned out to be a great surgeon. Well, we're going to operate. I'm like, you look like you're 16. <laughs> well, an older doctor came along and said, no, we're not going to operate. Here, here, Mom and Dad, just sit down here. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to give her a drug. The drug is not going to take away her pain, but I, I can tell you that she'll, she'll never remember this pain. That was the consolation he offered us for what we were about to see. And the doctor assured us, she's little, she's active, this bone will heal itself in days and weeks, and it will be better than it ever was as she uses it. Okay, so we knew the doctor, we trusted the doctors, we knew it was going to be okay, and we watched them inject a drug into Annika. And both Amy and I saw for a moment what it would look like if our daughter was a heroin addict. I can't even describe the grief. Like I cannot, I looked at my wife and the grief in her eyes. And then as they, the doctor actually asked me to help and I actually helped to set the bone in her arm. And I, I will never forget how her body writhed with pain. Her eyes rolled back in her head. I'll never forget. And it's, Part of me just says there's no justice because how many little girls in this world assaulted and raped and little boys who go through loss and trauma that we can't even bear to imagine. And they remember it. I'm sharing this with you so that you capture just a piece of God's heart this morning. After a few moments and that drug began to wear off and Annika fell asleep, we casted her arm, a little pink cast if I remember right. It was really cute actually. And she woke up and she was pretty groggy and grouchy for about a half a day and then we had our little girl back. And she hasn't stopped talking since. <laughs> True story. Um, listen, Amy and I knew that entire time that what needed to happen had to happen. We knew that. And we knew that the outcome was going to be better than what we were seeing in front of us right now. But at any time in those moments, do you think that Amy and I rejoiced in that suffering? And if I am a sinful man who can get my head around that thought for my daughter, how much more can you understand our Heavenly Father? He does not rejoice in your suffering. Even though He knows what's going to come out of it that's good and worth it, and He knows how He can turn it into a blessing. He knows how He can make it something beautiful. See, so many people get disconnected in this step because they actually think that God is rejoicing in their pain. God doesn't rejoice in your pain. God has never rejoiced in sacrifice at all. 
More on that in a moment. So Jesus, again, deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now this was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Here's the tragic end to this story. Lazarus still did die. I mean, it was years later, but he died. Okay? So, so just don't forget that. Don't forget that part of it. The people who were spontaneously raised from the dead at the crucifixion, they, they, they also died. In fact, as far as I know, every person that was ever raised from the dead in the Bible or in present times, they die still. But, but it, to me, it, it helps make the point. Understand that when something is dead, and I mean dead to the point of stinking, so you know that it's dead, like all life is gone from it. There are no synapses firing. There is no mitosis taking place. There's, there's nothing happening except for decay. That is when resurrection is needed. Worship team, you can come back. I call this a principle not because I want to take away from the power of Christ's resurrection. I don't say it lightly to include your dreams into this because somehow it maybe feels for you like dreams and, and visions and hopes and future and all those things that they fall short of real life, death, and life. But I want you to know that Resurrection is as much about your calling and ministry and even relationships as any other part of what you were created to do. It's not just if one part it's not just as if in one part of life we need his resurrection. We need his resurrection all the time. It's not like resurrection happens to you and it never happens again. I mean every single day that I wake up, I am waking up in the resurrection power of Jesus. What an amazing thing that is. We need his resurrection power in us all the time, in all places, in all the dreams, in all of the things that he's called us to. We need his resurrection life to be in us. When Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches apart from me, you can do nothing, he is speaking about the need to remain in him, to remain in resurrection life. Because in the moment that you separate yourself from Jesus, that continual flow of his resurrection life no longer is flowing into you. The, the, the connection is broken, and you are going to need restoration. Maybe you're like Mary and Martha. You're believing. You're serving. You're the perfect church person. You're full of faith. You're committed. You don't doubt. You're serving. You're doing all the right things. And you think maybe 
that somehow that's going to protect you from loss. I'm sorry to tell you this today, but serving Jesus will never protect you from loss. What serving Jesus will do is give you access to resurrection when you experience loss. That's the promise. The promise of following Jesus was never about ease or less hardship in your life. It was about the power to overcome. You are more than conquerors. And it is about the power to walk out of graves. It's about the power to dream again. It's about the power to step back into ministry. It's, a, it's about the power to rebuild a relationship. It's about His resurrection power living in you, exercised through you in this life. Hardship is guaranteed. But your posture, your posture will dictate whether or not you're connected to Jesus still. If you're walking in Him and with Him, you're walking in the light. And if you're without that, you're walking in the darkness. See, when we learn the power of his resurrection life in our, our existence, it's not that God celebrates in it. It's that we're able to. Count it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials and tribulations. God, God doesn't need to rejoice in your pain. But when we understand who Jesus is and what Jesus does, we can learn that we will be able to rejoice in spite of or in our suffering, our pain. Sometimes, sometimes he lets the thing he's doing in your life die. Not because you're good or you're bad, you're right or you're wrong, but because it needs to die to serve his purpose in the life of someone else. Young adults, we talked about this on Friday night a little bit. Because after all, you are a living sacrifice. And a sacrifice is made for others, not for the sacrifice itself. If I'm a living sacrifice, I don't go to the altar to benefit me, right? What benefit would that be to me? I got sacrificed. But if the sacrifice of my life does something in someone else's opportunity, in their life, in their ministry, in their family, then it was a worthwhile sacrifice. But understand this, that a sacrifice is always made for someone else, not for self. And it may be that God brings you to a place of sacrifice so that someone else's need can be met. And we don't need to worry because we live in resurrection life. I'm prepared for all things in my life to die. This building project, this land project, let me just tell you this church, do you understand the possibility exists that God would just have us hold this piece of land only to give it to someone else? I'm, I'm not saying that's what it is, I'm just saying that's how I hold the gifts of God in my hand. I don't make assumptions about what I get to do with my liberty. Because I was once a slave to sin, but now I'm a slave to Jesus. I live to serve His will. Can I, 
explain this to you one more time because I feel like some of you need to hear this. And by the Spirit of God, hear it today. God rejoices in obedience, not sacrifice. That is a promise of Scripture. God does not delight in sacrifice. But He does delight in our obedience. He does love and appreciate our obedience. So understand the difference when you're being a living sacrifice or when things in your life are placed upon the altar and they have to die and you find yourself needing resurrection life once again. Understand that God is not taking joy from your trial, but He is going to take joy from your obedience in a trial. Because you become the champion that He's cheering for. Never fall for that lie that the enemy tries to fly into your mind that God is pleased to see you in trial and struggle. It's not the case. It's just not the case. Why does it have to be this way? I don't have all my thought together on this, but here is what I think. As best as I can explain it to you. Why, why trial? Why struggle? I think that it is probable that a world with trial and a world with struggle, a world with a fallen, carnal nature in man is a better world than the one God could have created where we were always perfect all the time. I think that the opportunity for trial and loss and death and suffering in my life bears greater fruit than a life of ease and pleasure that required nothing of me. I think it's a better world. I think, I think his kingdom, I think his kingdom is a safer and better kingdom because we are weak and his strength is then perfected in our weakness. And I'm not trying to suggest anything other than this. That things are the way they are, and God must be right. And I know that's not a profoundly deep argument, but it's not intended to be. I'm just, I'm just trying to help us get to the place where we can understand what would life look like without resurrection life? What would life mean if death were not a possible reality? What does a victory mean if no one ever loses? See where I'm going? What, what does holiness mean if everything is perfect? Understanding that God doesn't need to rejoice in any of the brokenness for you and I to arrive at the place he's called us to. So come alive. Church, whatever is dead in your heart, Revelation says, therefore, strengthen what remains. Strengthen that thing that was about to die. Strengthen it. Fight for it. Don't give up on it. Well, Pastor, you just preached a whole message about, you know, things need to die so they can be resurrected. 
No, no, and if it's valuable, you'll fight for every inch of it. And then if it dies, you'll see God do resurrection miracles. Come on, church, we got to find the grit. We got to find the inner Holy Spirit inspired grit to take it all on head on, to rest in Him, to worship Him, to know when it's the season to fight, to know when it's the season to sow. there's a time for every season under heaven. Let me pray for you. I have no idea how we end the service today. Like we always do. Fair enough. I want to, first of all, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you are missing the key component to life everlasting. If that's you this morning, I want you to come and talk with one of us at the front. If you'd like to change that, you can change that in an instant today. If you have sickness in your body, you can come and get prayer this morning at this altar. And you just might see a miracle. Whatever struggle, whatever challenge you're facing, man, you don't have to leave this place the same way that you came. The presence of God is here. There are people here who will lend some faith to you if you need someone to lend you a little faith to get you to that next place. That's what community is for. The biggest thing today, church, can you just embrace in your heart with me that God is calling us to something amazing, something glorious, something profound, something miraculous. And we will experience losses along the way to our goal. But in those losses, we're going to see Jesus resurrect dead things back to life. We're going to see things we thought could never be restored be restored because of Jesus. And I'm talking about some of those relationships you're thinking about right now. Come on. Let's stand. I guess at the end of it all, you can just pray the simple prayer, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do with what I've heard today? And the best advice I could give you, my friend, is however he speaks to you after you ask that question, you invest fully in following through on his response to you. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give courage that you would give the appropriate response of our hearts today, Lord. Thank you for joining us in another podcast from Generations Church. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe to our podcast channel to get a new one each week. For additional information or to partner with us, please check out our website at www.genchurch.ca.